Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson, and I want to introduce this podcast, which is a conversation with myself, Nicole Kyle, and Katie Cole, author of Developing Female Leaders. Um, Katie was invited partly to discuss things related to sexual misconduct, specifically related to the scandal around Ravi Zacharias. The complete report of the investigation relative to him didn't come out until the day after this podcast. But here's what happened. I want you to understand that when I have somebody on, when they've just completed a book, I don't like to interview them about something else. I think that when you have somebody on who's just written a book, you should interview them about their book. They've spent a year or more of their life pouring into a single volume, the most coherent thought that they can put together about something. And I think it behooves you, them, and your audience to talk to them about their book. So most of what you'll see in here in this podcast is her discussing the ideas of her book, how we as the local church can release the full potential of women in our church. We make no bones about being a complementarian church. Um, but even within a complementarian church, there is so much that God has called women to do, so much gifting that they have, so much specific capacity they have as the complementary gender, as women, as opposed to being men. And there's so much that we some, that we sometimes do not release um, with women in the local church. And I think that we need to be very careful about that. Um, it's not, it isn't just being faithful to God to say, hey, we think elders are supposed to be men. And so all of our elders are men. Therefore we are, we are faithful to God. That's not really true. Letting all of God's people use all of their gifts still according to his requirements, but in the fullest way possible is full obedience. And so making sure that we are maximizing the influence of women at our church is just as important as making sure that we're obeying any specific commands God makes about gender distinctions. We have to hold both of those together. We have to be liberal in all the right ways, and we have to be conservative in all the right ways. And if we're not, we just, we're just going to fall into a pitfall of ideology rather than obeying the scriptures in their diverse tensions. So I hope you enjoy this. I hope you get a lot out of it, and I hope that you can apply some of these, these things to your spiritual life in the life of the local church. Hey everyone, welcome to Engage and Equip. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. We are in a mini-series called Beyond Hot Takes, where we're going one step beyond the current hot takes of our culture and taking a deeper look at the real issues behind these things. My name is Nicole Kyle, and I'm the worship director here at High Point Church, and I'm joined by Nick Gibson, who is our senior and lead pastor, as well as Katie Cole, who is author of Developing Female Leaders, among other two other books, right? Yes. Yes. And um, we're going to be talking today about uh, women in leadership and specifically developing those women who are in church leadership. And um, we'll also slightly talk about how that uh, interacts with moral failure and what it's like to have men and women working in close relationships at a church. So um, I'm going to start by reading an email that we got with a question for the podcast, and then we'll get to talk a little bit more. So This person writes, today I received an email from RZIM saying that the team investigating allegations of sexual misconduct against Ravi Zacharias has found credible evidence that the allegations are true and that his misconduct extends beyond the initial reports. The story of high-profile Christian leaders losing their way in some manner, whether it be through odd doctrine, Eric Metaxas was recently mentioned, or sexual misconduct or taking money is all too familiar. 
I know Nick takes precautions against issues like these at High Point, and I'm wondering if there would be any interest in an episode that details his efforts and also addresses the church's responsibilities in relation to leaders and our responsibilities in regard to our response to bad leaders. So um, in response to that email, we wanted to not just talk about what High Point does, although that's helpful, but we also wanted to talk about positive ways that the church can model men and women working together with integrity. And so we're going to um, we're going to talk about that within the context of talking with you, Katie, um, and having having an opportunity to ask you about your book. Um, and so your book is called Developing Female, Le- Developing Female Leaders. Um, I received this as a recommendation from another woman working at another church and really, really appreciated it, Um, found it so helpful and like a familiar face, a familiar story. It was really, um, yeah, it was just really helpful for me in a practical way. And I asked Nick and our exec pastor to read it and some of the other women on our staff team read it. So um, we're really excited to have you. And we'll be discussing it like in depth on our exec team in a month? Uh, I think actually just a couple weeks. A couple weeks. Yeah. So um, I thought it'd be so, helpful. Oh, go ahead, Nick. I always say that. Okay. So let me say a quick intro on the RZM thing and what we're talking about today. And then I want to ask Katie the first question every author should be asked. So um, our church does a lot of things to try to make sure that our inter-office and um, the relationships of people work together in ministry are not sexualized relationships so that we don't, ha- so that our work is a morally safe place. But one of the things that's also been discussed a lot um, in recent years relative to developing women leaders, um, women as leaders, is that some of those rules can actually be unintentional offenses to women progressing in both the develop- their development as leaders and also their place as leaders. And so it's not enough to just have a place that is morally upright in terms of the interpersonal relationships, in terms of sexual um, entanglements, but also there's the, the secondary justice issue of whether or not we're treating women as full members of our church so that they can do all the things that God has invited them and called them to do and gifted them for. And so we have to do, do both of those things. We can't. It's kind of like when Tim Keller says, you can't pick which four of the 10 commandments you're going to obey this year, right? You have to have a place that's both just towards women and and including towards women so we can accomplish all we can as the body of Christ and also is morally upright in relationship to sexual entanglements. And so we're going to talk mostly about today how to do the avoid entanglements thing while doing the other thing, which is maximally empowering female leaders within the local church, which is Katie's specialty. So we didn't want to take her valuable time talking about like moral failures of these men who have become celebrities and how that affects people and so on, but specifically to make sure women are being all they can be in the local church in the body of Christ, especially at High Point Church. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. Katie, the first book, the first question I think every author should be asked on a podcast or something is, what's your book about? <laughs> well, Nick and Nicole and everybody else, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here with you today and chat about this topic. So my book, Developing Female Ooh. Leaders, is just that. It's how particularly local churches can do a better job developing the female leadership gifts and talents they have in their congregations. And this is actually a passionate um, project for me, not because only I'm just a, not because I'm only a female or only a female leader in the church, but because I work with a lot of churches, particularly churches like High Point, fast growing churches, uh, a lot of multi-site churches. I have a master's degree in human resource development. So I work a lot with leadership development and most churches I work with just do not have enough qualified leaders. And almost all of them are missing out on a huge percentage of the leadership gifts God's given their congregation because they aren't um, set up to 
really maximize the female leadership gifts they've been given and aren't stewarding them to their full potential. So this is really my attempt to help uh, church leaders, pastors, even ministry leaders, small group leaders, you know, the youth group guy that goes once a summer to the camp, just some awareness of how uh, what Jesus has to say in terms of um, how we take on and steward leadership gifts and all the people God brings us. It's not just about men and women. It's about making sure we're maximizing everyone's calling and particularly doing that in our local churches. Yeah. Katie, would you say that um, that those churches also have a hard time really at, at, like activating men, but that the, the way you activate male leadership and the way you activate and empower female leadership just has some different dynamics. And so churches need to understand specifically certain dynamics that specifically relate to women, both because of historical reasons or, or traditional reasons or some things like that, or things specific to how women operate in organizations. I definitely think that's a component in many churches. I would say sort of from our research, the broad sweeping issue that we found is that particularly in North America and even many countries in Europe uh, with leaders that we work with there, uh, we are coming out of a culture and a mindset where there are really strong gender roles and very patriarchal uh, elements uh in our decision-making, in the way we operate our communities, and that bleeds over into our churches. And kind of regardless of where you fall on the theological spectrum about men and women and leadership and headship and those sorts of things, what we found is it was more these kind of habits of the leaders, the kinds of cultures we were usually inadvertently creating in our churches that were holding women back. Even many times, mindsets women have of themselves that they're bringing into leadership that most of us are just unaware of any of these things. You know, we inherited almost all of this. None of it is actively our fault, but as leaders, it is our responsibility. And so what I try to do in the book is simply raise the issue, point to the research and let you and your team diagnose what are the what are the areas that we particularly here are getting stum- stumbled up on? What are the things that I as a leader need to grow and stretch my own personal leadership practices and habits to make sure I'm not accidentally accidentally sending a message I don't intend to send or accidentally mm-hmm. leaving potential out because I just, you know, love to go to lunch with my guy friends and it never dawned mm-hmm. on me that the women on my team never get to hang out with me and hear my heart and vision for the future. It just never dawned yeah. on me. I wasn't trying to leave them out. I was just trying to take advantage of these guys I like to hang out with, but mm-hmm. I did it and I have to kind of come to terms with that and then ask myself, what kind of leader do I want to be and how do I make sure all of the people under my leadership authority have the same equitable access to me and the same chance to grow in their leadership. Yeah. So I want to say before we get too deep into the specifics that this is an issue for High Point Church and probably the churches of everybody who's listening to the podcast. Um, So for for example, um, uh, a super competent um, young, young doctor who just got promoted to head of medicine in the group that she works in said to me one time, we were just like having dinner with their family. She's like, well, I know you'd never let a woman teach a Sunday school class at High Point. When she uttered those words, there were one or more women currently teaching Sunday school classes at High Point. But like somehow just how we had done things, how some things had said, how she saw something, even though there were women on stage, they were, women are the majority of our staff team and all of that. She still somehow got that idea even though they're like fairly close family friends of ours, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had, um, we've also struggled with, there's a point in the book where you, I think it's on page 20 where you have a, like a chart where you're like, here's what women think that they're invited to do. And like, here's this like wiggly line of like what you might possibly think or like whatever. He's like, and then like up here somewhere is like what you're actually think you're inviting women to do, but that's actually not what they think they're being invited to do. And even if you have some kind of 
idea of male leadership in the church where there is some kind of area where you want just men to be serving, usually that's not the line the women in the church think it is. And that gap is a gap you should take up. Like, why have that gap, right? And Nicole, you also said there were some things that you like you bumped into. Yeah. As well, when you were talking about the um, woman who said, I would, would never let a woman teach Sunday school classes. It, I, mm-hmm. it reminded me of how um, when I was coming to interview for this job, I had previously been working with campus ministry. I had a lot of opportunities to teach. And I remember when um, my husband, Scott, and I were sitting having dinner with you when we had come for the interview. And you were just asking more about what are you hoping to do? whatever. And I said something like, yeah, you know, I, I really enjoy the part of my job right now where I get to teach. I'm wondering like, are there opportunities for that? If I get this job at high point, like I I know not, I'm not asking like for the sanctuary. I know I wouldn't, I wouldn't preach on a Sunday, but like, are there other opportunities to teach? And you stopped. You said, why do you think you wouldn't teach on a Sunday? And I just, it hadn't, it, that was an example to me of a place where like, I, in a lot of cases, I th- I think that my struggle, like you said, Katie, is like less with what I'm actually really allowed to do and some of these other cultural things that are surrounding it. And that was one where I, like, I didn't even realize that I was like holding myself back in how I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other ones too, and, and I want to say too, I mean, like, I feel generally like I've been really well supported by the men in my life. My dad has always been so encouraging and seen a lot of leadership potential in me from a really young age and like was never one of those dads who was like, stop being bossy or anything. Like Like, I didn't have that from him ever. My husband, I think particularly of all the things that he believes in me about it, specifically he believes in my ability to lead. And then on our staff team, like I feel really well believed in by Nick and our exec pastor, Mike. And yet I still experience some of these other things. Like I, I have been called bossy and I just feel like at this point, I'm like, I'm just going to lean into it. Like, yeah, well, someone's got to be bossy because otherwise nothing's going to get done. So sure, you can call me bossy. Um, Or like feeling like there are certain settings where if I lead the way that I normally would, if it were just up to me, I fear like I'm just going to be, it's going to feel like too much from me or like it's going to make some men uncomfortable. And so I feel like I'm constantly trying to play this game of like, I'm going to lead strong here. I'm going to try and be extra silly here or like, I don't know, talk about my outfit here to feel more like I'm being feminine enough. So it's not making you uncomfortable. But even though I feel like that's not really what I want to do in this particular situation. So the question of like, how can I be ambitious without being seen as greedy? Or like, how can I be ambitious without fearing that that's going to hurt the other women in my workplace? Like just, these are just like some of the things that I have felt again in a, in a setting, in a context where I feel like generally I do feel really well supported. And Mm -hmm. yet there's this other stuff too. So one of the points Katie make in the book is you say that, um, you need to know what women can and cannot do in your church if there is any kind of limit, and then you need to execute in relationship to that. So, like in churches, and in, in our church is, is more complementary, as I explained to you, that like um, the elder board is our, our elder board is all men, for example. But that's really the only line. Any the way we say it is um, anything that we would invite a non-elder to do, women are invited to do. It's kind of how we think of it that way, right? And so. Um, so as a church, like, what do you what do you tend to find as the biggest hurdles to this? 
Well, I I love your story too, Nicole, about these people who have believed in you and being in an environment. And it's such a great example that even someone like you who's grown up like that and is serving like this, you're still sort of facing these kind of inner dialogues. We call it in the book, I call it the sticky floor. It's kind of like, you know, the glass ceiling or the stained glass ceiling, like we talk about it in church. But the things that are going on inside a woman can really kind of wreak havoc on their confidence. And you're coming from a background where your leadership was affirmed. You can only imagine if a woman grew up in a home or a community or a generation where she actually was told she was bossy and that was wrong or that her ideas were not welcome. Even in an environment like yours, she's going to walk in and you might be yelling from the platform, women should do leadership. And she's going to hear they don't really mean that. They don't actually mean me, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and the burden is on women also to reflect on our own biases against ourselves. But it just goes to show that there's a lot at play here that I think most men, especially men who have risen somewhat smoothly into leadership, it's just hard to imagine. Uh, I think, Nicole, when you're in an exec meeting or whatever team you're serving on at the moment, it's probably shocking. I would think it would be shocking to most of the men who are sitting around there with you realizing all that's happening in your brain at the same time you're contributing to the conversation. And so that kind of dynamic just requires us to have a different approach. And like you said, one of the clearest ways to do it for Christians and in church ministry particularly is to be really clear about your theology. Uh, And one of the reasons is because I'm not necessarily advocating all women should lead just like I don't think all men should lead because not everyone Mm -hmm. is called gifted or ready to be in leadership. Mm -hmm. But those women you have in your congregation who are gifted, who are mature, who love you and your leadership, know the DNA of your church, have done all the steps. If they're not leading, you have to ask, why is that? And one of it might be clarifying your actual theology about it, because the more a woman gets to know the Lord, the more she studies her Bible, the longer she's been in church, which you're looking for leaders who are seasoned believers. You're not, you don't want to throw someone up into some big role or on stage who just got, became a Christian six months ago. You're looking for the people who have been around a while. If you've been around the church world a while, you know this is is an issue. It is a hot topic. It is a minefield. There are really great godly Christians on all sides of the theological issue have very different views and can justify it biblically. So it is a gray area and it's confusing. And so the reason it's important for churches, no matter no matter your theology, even if you encourage women to be in all roles, everyone needs to clarify that because no one's coming in with a clean slate, particularly into a leadership role. They need you to explain it to them. And the more uh, locked in they are in their faith and following biblical directives of leadership, the more they're going to be concerned about violating that. And that's why taking that wiggly room out, taking the assumptions out, godly leaders, let's just say it's a scale of zero to 10. And you're at like an eight and a half because you would welcome women into all sorts of levels of leadership, except the very top, which is eldership, which is great. You're an eight and a half. Well, if I come in and I'm like, it's unclear, I'm not sure, I'm going to guess it's probably a six. I'm guessing they're a six because they haven't told me otherwise. And But just to be sure, I'm going to lead at a four, which means I'm going to serve in children's ministry and can even be a great leader. I'll be a small group leader with my husband, right? That's like a four in my mind. Well, you're missing four to eight and a half of me. 
right? That is a lot of leadership and probably a lot of leadership that you need to launch a campus, to really take your online uh, efforts to the next level, to uh, Mm -hmm. make sure that you're reaching people and caring for them in the middle of a pandemic. Like there's a whole bunch of Mm -hmm. high level leadership. Four to eight and a half is high level leadership. I'm basically just taking that off the table because I assumed incorrectly and you didn't help me see the difference. And so that's why we really have to have those open dialogues. Yeah, Katie, I think that's especially true for our church in particular, because our church is a like doctrinally conservative church. Like we believe in scripture, like, right, but we're not fundamentalist. And so we get a lot of people who hated their fundamentalist background, but want to stay Christians. Yes. You know, we get a lot of those people and a lot of those women. And so we have women come to our church that are like, they're really afraid of their sexuality. They're like, they feel like they're not supposed to do stuff. They feel like the pastor is going to attack them. Like if they step out of line at all, like it's just, they just carry all, they've brought all this stuff from these church in, in Wisconsin in particular has a lot of very fundamentalist small Baptist churches that these people, yeah. a lot of these folks come from. And I would say almost a quarter of our new people are coming from that kind of background and half of them are women. And I just can't tell you how many women I've talked to that are, that like are bewildered in terms of like what is open to them. I think uh, part of it, too, is the way our cultures look at that. And not just, uh, you mentioned Baptists, that definitely is an area that can some churches can really lean towards legalism. I find a lot of Catholic women also have very strong gender roles, um, particularly if they go to a, a basic Catholic church that is led by priests only without a strong nun presence. Um, so all of our religious backgrounds, again, but we're also talking about religions and the way they've expressed themselves over the last 100 years. So it's cultural and gender generational. It is theological. Um, And we want people in leadership who believe the Bible. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm never worried about a woman who wants me to prove to them or wants their pastor to explain to them theologically. That's actually who we want in leadership. We don't want to put the person who's like, I actually don't care what the Bible says. You just tell me what to do. That's not who you want to empower in ministry. So it is a good wrestling to have. You want to welcome it. The other thing is godly women, for the most part, aren't angry about the roles you have for them. I think sometimes it's easy for guys to feel like, man, as soon as we open up the doors for women to lead, they're going to cheer like crazy. Well, some might, but again, your godly Bible-based women who have been in Bible studies, watching Beth Moore for 30 years and doing the the highlighting with Kay Arthur, you know, those women who know the word, they're, they're not looking for you to change God's word. They're looking for you to lead her into God's word. So being able to articulate the theology is really important. And then part of those cultural pieces, though, are making sure the way we're communicating it is not um, in the space of here's what you can't do. So let's let's all talk about women in leadership. And let me tell you what you can't do. Well, we don't ever do that to guys. We don't get the guys together and say, hey, guys, let me tell you, if you um, all the divorced guys go over here, you can't do these things. All the guys that have been in recovery, you can't do these things. All those people have been you know, married, who have whatever, all these issues that we would actually look at as negative that would prevent you from going into becoming a pastor, becoming an elder, uh, serving as a small group leader, any of those things. We never take them and say, here's what you can't do. We invite people to do all of the things, and then we just don't select them for certain roles. But they know that 99% of them are going to be able to serve in ministry somewhere. When we talk to women, a lot of times we lead with the one or 2% or even 10 or 20% mm-hmm. rather than talking really loudly about the 80% mm-hmm. and not even needing to talk about the 20% except in this theological 
conversation mm-hmm. and instead really uh, encouraging and owning and celebrating all of that. There's a class a couple of summers ago that we had. There were it, there was a lot of um, questions from women that we were that were just really wanting to understand what does it mean really to be a woman and to be a Christian. And so we had a class that was only for women. It was taught by women, and it, we just it was a really great opportunity. Nick's wife was one of the um, women who taught this class, and part of it was okay. What does it mean to be a complementarian church? And one of the questions that felt like was this burning question was from women like, well, what can we do? And it was like, I just felt like it was this freeing moment as Alexi just went through all of these things. She's like, there is so much. There is so much opportunity for women to lead and to serve and to do ministry and to have an impact and to get to watch God work in the lives of people in this church. Just as she went through and listened, she's like, there's, it's really not that much that women can't do. It's this like small little thing. And here's all of this other stuff. And here are all of these other ways for you to get to be a part of serving and leading in the church. And I, I think too, when you talked about how like the women who are godly and who want to understand scripture, that clarity is really usually just what the hurdle is rather than I mean, obviously, sometimes if you are a woman who believes one thing theologically and find yourself in a community that is different, there's going to be some tension there. But but for a lot of the women who are at our church, it's really just this lack of clarity about it. And so, yeah, that was just one example of where I saw that feel like it was really freeing for the women who were there. Right. Um, and if we think about things like eldership, that's rarely someone uh, something that someone feels 100% called to do. I came to this church so I can be your elder. Like eldership is something that's affirmed and confirmed by the spiritual leaders of the church. It's not something we aspire to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are some roles that women feel really led to do that maybe their church might limit them for people from other churches listening. And I would just say that is few and far between. But if that's an issue, then then follow your calling. But if it's not, then simply kind of bloom where you're planted and maximize who you are and what your role is. The goal is not to climb the ministry ladder of leadership. That is not what we're called to do, is to have more and more power and control. You know, Jesus says, it, not so with you, right? This is, you're not supposed to be someone who lords it over the people. You're not supposed to aspire to have more and more ability to lead. We're supposed to serve. We're supposed to walk through the open door and our leaders can help us know where our best fit in ministry is. And that's really the goal, everyone in their best fit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, one of the chapters where you talk about integrating spiritual formation and leadership development, um, which I think is here, especially hearing more, you talk more about your background with having a background in um, human resources, human development, and then also Um, So like the leadership side, the skills, growing in skill sets and understanding your giftings, but then also the spiritual side of being connected and a part of a church. Um, Could you talk a little bit about, uh, I have some specific questions, but before you get into that, can you talk a little bit about how you see these two things integrated together in the church and specifically what that can look like for developing the women in your churches? So when I wrote this chapter, it was really talking to many of the churches who have been uh, maybe around for a while and are coming out of a tradition where there is women's ministry and men's ministry. And discipleship happens in these very strong gender-based mentorship relationships where women disciple women and men disciple men. Um, Those are wonderful, and there's great positive aspects to all of that. Uh, And we do see examples of that in scripture. However, the challenge is that that's not the only uh, kind of development we see in scripture. So when we limit ourselves to only that, we're really 
uh, stealing away from the body some of the complexities of intergender relationships and intergenerational relationships, by the way, also. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that ha- is uh, an easy trap for that is what happens with men in men's ministry, so to say, or men's small groups, is that the men who lead those tend to be leaders of the church. So when a guy is new to the Lord or even just you know 25 and I'm coming back around because I got a baby now and I'm back in church and I'm taking my spiritual life seriously— their spiritual formation is integrately integrated with their leadership development. So the pastor or the elder or the even the small group leader who is a mentor is also inviting them to lead the small group, is also inviting them to be on the usher team, is also inviting them to go on that conference and go to mm-hmm. the retreat. They, for them, it's one and the same because men tend to be spiritually grown through the aspect of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, even when they think about their role as husband and dad, it's usually in terminology that's leader oriented. So yeah. men, no matter when they enter the church, they are being groomed as leaders. For mm-hmm. women, leadership almost never enters the conversation. So they're getting great spiritual formation. They're learning their Bible. Uh, they might be asked to be a table leader facilitator. Same role, different title. And it says something different to women when they're a facilitator versus being a leader. They might be invited into children's ministry. Again, it can be very strong teacher and leadership roles, but we, but it doesn't feel the same as a guy being invited to the lead the usher team and go on the elder retreat. Just has very different connotations. The women who are running women's ministry generally are not pastors, not ministry leaders, not even on staff. Many of them are spouses of staff members, which is another whole topic that we could get into at some point when you start talking about leveraging marriage relationships in leadership roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It gets very complicated, very difficult. Then the other piece that I see happening a lot that when I work with churches, we have to unwind is many times women's ministry has almost no accountability or responsibility. They get either a lot of budget or no budget. They have very minimal oversight. It's led by many times uh, women who are very influential or you know married to these guys as bosses. And so it's hard to hold them accountable. So you've just got a lot of activity, a lot of flurry, but not a lot of alignment to the rest of the church and no integration for those women to actually be leaders in the church. They're leaders in women's ministry, but they're not leaders in the church. So that, as you can imagine, when you play that forward 10 or 20 years, just propagates itself and creates creates more division. And we see a lot of churches as they start to decline, their women's ministry continues to grow. Many churches who are over 30 years old have larger women's ministries than they do Sunday morning services. And that is the sign of a real unhealthy community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There there were a couple things that stuck out to me as I was reading through that chapter that I just wanted to bring bring attention to. One of them was when you talked about basically this very idea. You said, I'm going to just quote something that you wrote. Um, This was coming out of an interview of, I think this was women who were um, led well. And there was a a survey. And so this was coming from that, but it said most of the interviewed leaders talked about the incredible people who believed in them, gave them opportunities way before they were probably ready and made space for mistakes and learning as a positive aspect of leading. Um, 
I actually don't know if that was just leaders in general or if it was specifically men or specifically women. Um, but I think that's an example of the sorts of things that can happen for women that it sounds like you're saying in a lot of settings doesn't happen. Um, it was exactly what I experienced at High Point as a college student being asked to start serving on the worship team. And then there were like plenty of opportunities for me to try things when I was young and kind of an idiot in many ways. And like also had a lot of potential too. Like yeah, I'm trying you to self separate. Yeah, you, were I was just, yeah. you were just young. Yeah. Somewhat yeah. inexperienced. Yes, yeah, somewhat inexperienced. That's a much mm-hmm. more gracious way for each but, of you to but speak. But Nicole, to me. I, you're you're um but like yours was very anomalous. Like you and Scott lived with us for 10 months. Like the, like almost no other leader that I've invested in at High Point other than Adam Darbone have I like li- literally lived in my house and was like at our kitchen counter while Lexi was cooking for right. months, you know. And that's part of I mean I know that isn't possible in every person's experience, but that also was an example of how that was so beneficial for me in growing and being developed because it wasn't just hearing sermons and trying to glean how it applied to me personally in my life or in my leadership, but I had those very opportunities to try and lead when I was still 20 and 21. And mm-hmm. I did get to sit and talk with you and Alexi at length in whatever I really wanted because I was, I mean, I was, we were in your family, we were in your house, we were living there. And so those okay. are the sorts of ways that I feel like that was such an example of spiritual formation and leadership development for me being intertwined mm-hmm. and integrated really well. The other side of that though is, uh, Nick, you got to know Nicole and uh, ask her questions and see her responses and see what she did with what you said to her and watch the growth happen. And I think sometimes it's easy to feel like these um, mentoring moments are one way where uh, Nicole is getting all that she can from you and your wife and that's really growing her. But it also is what allows you to give her a staff role because you trust her. And so uh, when we talk about spending time one-on-one, men and women, uh, particularly in leadership environments, Everybody loses when we don't allow those more personal mentoring moments to happen because you're going to hire the people you trust and you're going to trust the people you spent the most time with and had the most conversations with. So all of that becomes important in this um, integration of leadership development and spiritual formation and relational development, particularly in churches that tend to rely on organic relationships to build trust versus more process and measurement tools to build trust. Yeah. And that was, that was integral with Nicole because I got the most, she's, I got the most criticism hiring her of any staff member I've hired and also probably the, some of the, probably the most positive feedback in the long run after hiring her. But like our, our communications and small groups director, Aaron, um, Erin Hesse, she she did came through the way in your book that you talk about somewhere. She like she volunteered while she was a manager at Starbucks. She like distinguished herself as somebody who like took her job seriously, was really trying to help, was really trying to grow things. The, Lisa, the staff member that was above her, came to me when Lisa was leaving and was like, "Look, Erin is so faithful. She could lead this ministry. You should hire her." We did. She did a great job. Now she's on our exec team. So like that was very much kind of what you talk about in the book of like, be looking at your volunteers, like look at who cares and then call people to more. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, We're going to talk a little bit next about, I mean, something that you just brought up, Katie, that, that how, like if we say we can't ever have these sorts of relationships, then we miss out in some way. So we're going to get to more of that conversation because I imagine there are lots of like, but what about going on in people's heads? But before we do that, 
I have just a couple of questions that I, as a woman who has been in working in the, these positions, have come up for me and some of the other women that I work with. And so I'm going to take advantage of having the mic right now <laughs> and ask you some questions. So um, I'll ask it first. Oh, well, yeah, I'll start with this one. So a question that I've had that I've had heard other women ask as well, when it comes to growing as a leader and developing as a leader, how how can we have integrity and also be ambitious, but deal with this perception of what ambition can look like when it's coming from a woman? And that's, I feel like that gets at the heart of like, it's all kind of sticky and it is this like internal thing that's going on and it's the cultural situation but I'm still going to ask the really, you know, complex question. <laughs> well, it is complex, uh, partly because everyone's got a little different relationship with that. But w- one of the uh, research pieces I talk about in the book is this idea of the likability trap. And in our culture, especially the culture we're kind of coming out of, and the reason I keep saying we're coming out of the culture is the gender shift has really been happening in our wider North American European culture for quite a while. Uh, The church is really kind of catching up to that and reestablishing how we articulate our theology in the midst of a culture that isn't gender-based like it used to be. Uh, So So we are sort of the generation, those of us talking right now and listening right now, we're the generation that's kind of the in-between generation of what was to what will be. And so as we sort of come out of this much more mindset and our moms and grandmas probably had all of these sort of biases really steeped in, uh, one of them is this idea that the more ambitious a man is, the more he's promoted in his workplace or in his church, the stronger leadership, uh, kind of what we think of as strong leadership qualities he begins to exude, the more we like him, the more we trust him, the more he provides a sense of direction and stability and uh, trust in what in what he's doing and what he says and where we're heading and how my job relates to it. For a woman, though, she tends to have a very different experience. And the higher you grow in leadership, the more those harder sides of leadership skills are required. You can't be everyone's friend and be a director or an executive director. You have to make tough calls. You have to be okay with disappointment. You have to work hard for things. It doesn't just come to you. When you're you know, an entry-level something, if you show up to work on time, you could be a superstar. Like that's kind of the, right? <laughs> you show up, you show up on time, you work your whole shift, I don't catch a sneak food or talking on your phone. like It doesn't take a lot to be stellar. But the higher you grow in leadership, the more you have to really hone in these leadership qualities. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be oriented uh, towards what we think of as great masculinity. And when we see those show up on a woman, we tend to not like her as much because she isn't what we want her to be. So she's driven. She's got a vision. She's clear and articulate. She says things as they is, uh, as they is. (laughs) She says things as they are. Um, she doesn't, you know, pussyfoot around the topic. She's okay with people being disappointed in the decision. She makes tough calls. She moves quickly. She delegates strongly. A lot of times these things are looked at as unpleasant on a woman. And so most women feel sort of caught in this likability trap. I want to be a well-respected leader. I want to be efficient and effective. I'm doing all the things my male mentors are telling me to do at this level. I'm reading all the books, but people don't like me as much. No one 
one wants to have lunch with me. People are intimidated by me. And I don't know which to be. Do I want to be liked or do I want to be respected? That is a horrible choice to have to make when you're trying to fulfill mm-hmm. your calling. There, I think there are some leaders that are ambitious that are men who kind of like a little bit that people dislike them. Oh, and there's definitely people who like to kind of have a little, you know, throw the grenade into the room and stir it up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I. It's funny because I, I, I feel this tension a lot personally. And I, I, I've talked with some of my other friends that I work with where we've been candid that like, not only do we feel this tension of, do I want to be liked or respected as a leader? But we've also phrased that question slightly differently. Like, do I want to keep my friends or do I want to keep my job? Like yep. sometimes it feels like that's where the the decision we feel like we're being um, having to make in that moment. And I think too, I mean, yeah, what advice do you have for women who are trying to pursue ambition and aspirations, but knowing that sometimes it's going to mean that like another woman doesn't get that same opportunity? Because I think generally speak, I mean, you talk in your book about how making sure that women understand there's a place for them at the table. And I, and I, I like that terminology. I've liked that terminology in conversations about race and culture as well. But the, the, the flip side of that is that sometimes there really is only one seat at the table and someone's going to get it, whether it's there, a man or a woman or someone from majority culture or minority culture, there's like, there's this one spot available. And that I think this, it's the idea of the scarcity mindset filters into this whole thing. So what what advice do you give to women who find themselves in those sorts of situations? Yes. Well, you're hitting on actually a couple different topics. So yeah, this yeah. one <laughs> is scarcity or competition, I think, where all of a sudden now my ambition is pitched against your ambition, which is, by the way, not a female issue. This is a leadership issue. There's only mm-hmm. one senior pastor. There's only one, you know, there's only a handful of campus pastors. There's only a few spots on the executive team. And they don't turn over very often, particularly in churches. So again, if we've got our mindset, and this would be for all leaders, if our mindset is on climbing some sort of ladder, where the goal is to get to the top. We're really missing what calling is about. That is uh, career building. That is not answering your calling. So there's some self-reflection and some time with the Lord that we really have to spend. God, what are you actually calling me to? And a lot of what I do in my organizational leadership practice is talk leaders through different levels of organizational growth and different levels of organizational leadership. The goal is not to be at the top. The goal is to find your spot. Mm -hmm. There is a place where you will be the most fruitful in the kingdom and the most satisfied with your life. Where is that and how do we get you there? And then how do we make you better and better at that where you can still get the salary you want and you can still have the life you want? And you can still have the influence you want, but you're not tied to a role because you think it looks better than the others. So that's a leadership issue that we oftentimes have in our cultures that is very unhealthy. Uh, The second thing, though, is when we are pitched against each other, there is only room for so many. And it's one of the reasons why we talk about leadership being lonely at the top, because as you grow in leadership, you can't be best friends with the people you lead. You just can't. And the higher you go in leadership, the more you are supervising and leading your friends or their spouses or their children or their brother-in-law or in church, all of the above at one time. And so trying to create some space, when you put it in a ministry context, it's even more complex because now these are my, this is my church community. 
And so now those people I'm in a small group with, they also want to corner me over the nachos about why, you know, the pastors did this and what we're going to do about that. And how's this working? And why am I not being considered for this job? Right. So all of these relationships, which when they all are wonderful and there's no sin involved, is this amazing overlap of our family and our community and our job. And it's like this big utopia that we all imagine, which will happen in heaven, but it can't happen now. And so getting real about those kind of boundaries and how our relationships shift and change. And part of answering our calling, I believe, is knowing what am I up for? There are seasons in life where I've chosen to uh, take demotions or not accept a promotion because the season of my life needed more communal support than what I would be able Mm -hmm. to have as a higher level leader. Mm -hmm. And then there were other seasons in my life where I'm like, I'm ready to go for it. I'll find my three friends from other churches if I need to for the next couple of years, but I'm taking this on. Mm -hmm. And so creating for women in particular, and I talk about this a lot in the book, really finding your people, the other people who have calling similar to you, who have wiring similar to you. You mentioned earlier about talking with a woman who gave you my book, who's (laughs) another woman at another church, right? A fellow believer, someone who you respect and want to know her opinion, someone who can relate to your experience. Many times those relationships have to be found in other communities. Uh, That's why most senior pastors do a safari at some point and write a book and be on boards with other senior pastors because they're the ones who can relate to their experience. They have friends. It's just not they can't rely on their church to be their only friends anymore. So Mm -hmm. that's just a part of growing in leadership. Everyone has to face that. For women, it's a little more challenging because there's fewer of us to pick from right now. And even in your own staff, many guys can find at least one or two other guys on staff who get it like they get it. Women tend to not have that. You have other women who are also as confused as you are trying to navigate what you're navigating. You don't have someone who can give you good perspective. So we just have to reach out. We have to create networks. It's why we founded the Women Executive Pastor Network is so that we could find each other and support one another to make it in the game till we populate and God sort of raises up more and more women and more and more churches where we don't have to quite look so hard to find one another. Katie, let me ask something that might sound like a really impertinent question relative to human resources related to this. Um, One of the things that we advocate at High Point is that we don't want women to be caught in the, you can have it all trap, but oh wait, no, you can't. So that, um, like we hear from psychologists now that the biggest complaint of women in their 50s who have been career women is they wish they'd had more children now in these later years of their life. And so we've got people like Nicole's age, like 30 something. And these women are like, I want to grow. I want to be a leader. I also want to have a second child. I want to have a third child. Um, I don't want to work 55 hours a week. I can't do that and be a mom and a wife. I like, And so we've got these kind of weird, but our church is very much for that. We're like, look, women can't do everything yet. Women may want to do all the things relative to the limited time that they have. So, so like, for example, Nicole doesn't work full time. She's like basically full time, but like, I don't, I don't just call her and say, Hey, you're doing this this week. Like I would a guy that I expect to work 55 hours a week. Cause she's a mom. She has two kids, but she's also a leader. So we have this weird thing at our church where like, I have two women on our exec team who don't even work full time. I have one of our, a talented young woman who was our communications director. She, she left that job and became my assistant, which is like a no, no in your book, but like she kind of wanted to stay on staff. She still wanted to work. But she wanted to have children too, and her husband's doing this thing, and she that's just what she chose to do because she wanted to do both, right? And so our church has been very flexible related to that. But it's also kind of hard because, like, listen, like maternity leaves are like they're not fun for the upper division 
leaders. And like on one level, we're like, take your maternity leave. God bless you. Motherhood. And another of them, like, dang it, you betrayer. Like, I like, what the heck do you expect us to do when you just leave for a couple of months? Like, so like there's this dynamic. And so our church is trying to like fully embrace this. Like we believe that fertility is part of um, normal, a normal woman's life, the way she wants it to be that creates certain limitations for her to do that really well. And so we have to like do things that are inherently sexist to affirm those things. And we don't treat men. Like I don't give men maternity leaves, paternity leaves because the research shows that men work on their paternity leaves and women spend time with their babies on paternity leave on maternity leaves. Like they don't, they don't do the same thing when you give them the time off and the money. So there's like, there's these like sexist conundrums relative to how we see women as engendered people, like people who are women and yet wanting to treat them with full equality in certain ways in which there's this kind of sense where we want it to be interchangeable. Like, and in the church, we can do some of these things legally that businesses can't, but still we want to be, do the best we can. So like, do you have comments on that? Like, I, I feel like it's sort of weird and we just have embraced the tension of it and it's just a thing. And, but I don't know if there's, I don't, I don't know what other people do, frankly. Well, I would say many of the things you're talking about are exactly what I champion in the book, which is being able to have open conversations with the women and the men on your team about parenting and what that means for them, how you support them and what that looks like. And particularly for women, uh, again, especially in this transition generation where uh, we still have very high expectations of what motherhood looks like versus what fatherhood looks like at certain ages. And our culture is set up for moms to win with their kids. It's not really set up for dads to win with their kids in the same way. So we've got those pieces that kind of keep us trapped in that a little bit. Uh, But giving women the opportunity to keep their leadership level in the organization, but not have to crank out the same amount of hours or have the same kind of taxing pieces of their job. So a lot of times I'll advocate for exactly what you're doing, which is how can she work part-time and in, and you take that salary she's giving up and give her an assistant or an assistant director or a part-time whatever. So the department stays moving forward and you keep her brain of leadership and historical knowledge and an open door for her to come back full-time as her kids get older or as she, her life shifts. Uh, but you don't lose and have to start over with someone. So mm-hmm. there is a price to a traditional like three-month maternity leave, but the buy-in of the woman and the longevity you will get over the course of a 40-year career, that's what you're stewarding. In the course of 40 years, the guys are also going to hit some rough spots. They're going to have you know, a heart attack when they're 50 and be out for three months on whatever. They're going to, you know, someone in their family is going to get sick and they're going to have to do things. They'll, you'll give them two or three sabbaticals over that time. So if a, if a woman has been part-time for many years uh, having kids, I don't think most of them are going to expect now a two-month sabbatical when she comes back, even though she's been on staff for 15 years or 20 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a, if you can think about how do we actually make it more equitable for the journey of the person? Because we're not even talking about men and women women. I have a really good friend who's an executive pastor whose wife passed away. He's got two kids. Well, guess what? He needs what we would consider more of a mom schedule, but he's a parent. He's a single parent. Uh, There will be women who don't have children and never married. More and more of them. Single women need a different journey. You better give her a sabbatical. If in your mind you give guys sabbaticals and you give women maternity leave, you're not being equitable to the unique journey. The other thing is I would just encourage you to start talking about what is it that we want fatherhood to do? Because you are it's easy to think about our full-time female staff members as needing to navigate parenthood, but 
your your male workers are husbands and dads, just like she's a wife and a mom. And for some reason, being a wife requires me to leave my job, but being a husband doesn't. So I would just say, what what are we saying when we say that? What expectations do we have of what a woman is doing at home to be a wife that a guy doesn't need as much time to be a great husband? And is and I'm not even saying I know what that is. I'm just saying, mm-hmm. why do we say that? Why is the expectation different? There isn't any more physically demanding uh, of being a wife or a, a husband like there is to being a mom or a dad when you're live birthing a child. But when you adopt a child, are we talking about the same thing? Should we have a different way of looking at paternity leave when mm-hmm. it's not literally coming from a woman's body and, you know, kind of the consequences of that? So I would just encourage the conversation to be about parenthood. Um, how do we even encourage kids on our campuses? Most progressive churches and businesses have things like daycare, um, preschools, things that make that work for both parents. Um, and then how are we supporting two career families if they're not both working at our church? So a lot of times men will work at the church and they have a full-time stay-at-home wife. And so is our expectation different of him than if we have a full-time man working whose wife also has a full career outside the church? And then do we have different expectations if they both work full-time? We let her off early, but we don't let him off or or vice versa. And so mm-hmm. just really categorizing and are actually uncategorizing and thinking clearly through that. But the biggest thing is exactly what you're doing. It's having the conversation with the individual. What mm-hmm. do you, Nicole, need? What do you, Anne, need? What do you, Sarah, need? What do you, John, need? What do you, Josh, mm-hmm. need? What do you need? We are for you and your family. What can we do for you? And as you go, you'll start to see rhythms and trends and expand your thinking to have more processes and standards. But uh, I think you're doing a great job and are very on the front end of helping women navigate that tough season. Okay. And if the point leader person, like the senior pastor, says something like, Katie, that is an exhausting process, you would just be like, well, you're the senior leader. You just got to do it. That's the response to that? Yeah, I think all leadership is exhausting. I mean, I think figuring out your insurance contract for next year is exhausting. I think figuring out your sermon series for next year is exhausting. Like it Mm -hmm. is when you're talking about leadership development, we're not talking about what you want to do for everyone. I'm talking about your top 10% of what you're going to do with your church for the next 20 years. Like if you want to invest in something, invest in your top 10%. Go spend your energy there because that trickles down to everything else. Nicole's ability to lead and advocate and be creative with her team is going to be directly related to your willingness to lead and advocate and think creatively on her behalf. She's going to model what you've done for her. So you get to set the pace even in this. Mm -hmm. Katie, one of the things that um, that I read in a number of places is that generally speaking, when it comes to high performance and higher salaries, that it only requires 12 to 15% more labor to get a 40% salary payoff, right? Like the, like, and traditionally this is meant the guy that like, because his wife has a flexible schedule, his schedule can be unflexible so that like when he gets called, he's there and he works that 55 hour week or that whatever that because he, and he only has to work 12 to 14% more and he gets the 40% payoff because he's that guy, right? Like what I have found relatively speaking is that a lot of women are willing to take that that trade-off and to say, look, if I make my life more flexible so that my husband can always be available, the financial payoff for our family is very significant. 
I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person who's available 60 hours a week and can be called anytime. I'll, I'll, I'm really 40 hours a week, but I'm not willing to do that. Right. He's willing to do that. So I'm going to, I'm going to seek a career path that has this kind of built in flexibility. It'll have a lower salary connected to it, but it'll have high flexibility and it allows our family to make 30%, 20%, or maybe even 40% more because of that focus. And I see a lot of women in our movement, at least being willing to choose that, being willing to say, um, we can't both work the same way because you get less of a payoff if we all work, if we both work fifty percent of the work. You get less of a payoff. Now, every once in a while, you get the Amy Coney Barrett or Ruth Bader Ginsburg who has the male spouse who's like, "Baby, you are so much more talented than me. You go for the gold." But that's, I mean, that's got to be like if that's one in fifty couples, I would be astounded, right? Like it seems like generally speaking, there is this structural, engendered reality that isn't just culture that has to do with biology and fertility and certain dynamics like that and what men want to do and what women are wanted to do and what each of them are willing to do that is going to persist these certain distinctions. So like when you were asking these questions, like, well, why do we treat these people different? Like, so I come from the perspective of some of it is culture and some of it is stupid and some of it we got to get rid of. Totally agree with that. Some of it is like rooted in how we are organisms with each other and our genders and how babies come out and how we bond in early relationships of parenthood and how how marriages stay intimate, how you maximize income without maximizing work that wears both people out. All those kinds of dynamics that are like, they're like physics, like you can't beat them. And they're going to create realities for women that are never going to even out in a way because of different dynamics and that like, we might just have to make them as good as we can. Like, is that... Do you have comments about that? Or are you kind of like, oh, well, I mean, if that's your view, that's your view. Or, or well, you- I mean, I do think there are some realities that are never going to change, right? And we yeah. know biblically, like the curse for women has to do with childbirth and the curse for men has to do with work. Like that is mm-hmm. going to continue to play out in our world. Uh, yeah. But when it comes, so a couple comments on that. Uh, one, yes, that is true. I think uh, the reality is in the research about men and women's income potential, uh, most families are seeing, uh, in fact, I think it's 50 women are the bread winners of their homes and generally speaking uh, have more income potential over time if they were to take the high level, higher level job. So if you're thinking of it strictly from income levels, uh, uh, I think that what you were saying earlier, I don't know that I totally agree with that if it's strictly an income earning potential and more and more families are running up against that. That's why we're seeing many more stay at home dads. Because I, th- I think that's right with training because like women are getting many more professional degrees yes. and there's more men that aren't. And so their income potential is going to go up when you get when you hit like 35 to 45 years old. Yes. If they and- take that step. Yeah. The piece of um, our shift into a knowledge-based economy tends to line up more with the hard wiring of women to be more relational, to be more collaborative, to be more partnership-oriented, uh, to be able to uh, move fluidly between context and cultures into a variety of more matrix organizations versus hierarchical. So their ability to be promoted into management and senior levels Um, even though we aren't seeing the high levels of numbers yet, in uh, low to mid-management, women are outpacing men pretty significantly. And so many middle-income families are facing that. It's not easy for the guys. It's not easy for the women. I would say that our culture has a lot of pressure against that, and this isn't always the preferred thing, but it is the reality. So if we're talking reality of income potential. However, I would say that's one dimension to what that decision is. And uh, even as a woman who has made that decision to take a less 
best job to be home with my child uh, and let my husband do the more uh, the the bigger job that, as you would say, like requires the more available all the time. I didn't do it for income potential. I did it because I have the same priority for my kid because my availability needs to be for my kid. Second grade, throwing up in class, I will be there in five minutes. That's what Mm -hmm. I took a demotion for because that matters to him. Uh, Mm -hmm. Being able to take seventh grade off from any evening activities in my job so I could do homework every single night to get through seventh grade math, I will do that Mm -hmm. because I know if I don't do that, uh, a guy might not make as much money over his lifetime I'm going to end up at some rehab camp in my kid's 20s because I let him find his own way from throw up day or seventh grade math class where he thought he was an idiot, right? Like I'm investing in the long-term play on my kids. So both of those are imperative. Now, is it imperative that mom pick up throw up day? No, dad can do that also. And there are many dads who do. I think that's why we have to challenge ourselves to make sure we're making our organizational policies not based on something like gender. Because when we do that, we're not allowing the anomaly couple, the unique female, the odd uh, family dynamic to fall into our policies. When we just kind of go with women get this, men get that, that's how we perpetuate stereotypes and we out women who aren't falling into that. And the challenge for leadership is most female leaders are the minority of their gender. So when you are making decisions for women in who are in leadership based on the majority of women, you're really not making it for the women in leadership. You're really making it for the majority of women who will not necessarily be going for high level leadership. So, and part of this is my own experience. I am on a Myers, if you're a Myers-Briggs person, I'm an INTJ female. That's less than 2% of the population. So almost any decision you make for women that would like, past the Hallmark Channel discussion <laughs> is not, I am not interested in that decision. That is not going to relate to my life. I'm not going to resonate with it. Even the language you use, I'm not going to understand it. I won't wear the right outfit to celebrate it. Like I will, I will mess up all the female rules, but I'm the one who will help you launch nine campuses. Yeah. I'm the one that will empower 500 volunteers to be in those campuses in the next five years. Like I will do the different thing because I'm a different person. And so I want a policy that I fit in for my unique life and my unique wiring. So do you, so do I tell the HR person, we're sorry, we're not going to have these. Like, I know you want clearer policies. Like I get that, but the handbook is the handbook. And these rules are kind of, they're not made to be broken, but they're going to get broken a lot because it is, I mean, these are the people are different and we're, we have to work with these staff people, especially the people who are in that top percent that we really want to retain. I think there's always way to create options when you're looking at policies and procedures. What you can't do is give everybody the exact same thing. Equality is not the same as equity. So being able to offer, we have these five ways you can take uh, parental leave. You can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, right? I'm going to find one of those five that's going to work for me or offer three or offer two. Or, you know, there's a way to create Um, It's kind of like saying uh, everyone has to buy the same exact insurance plan rather than giving three options, right? It's the fact that you give everyone the same three options and let them freely choose that makes it legal, that makes it equitable. But forcing everyone to have only one insurance policy that charges everybody the same charge for the same benefits that may not apply to them, that's what's not equitable. So you want to give options. You want to have structure. You want to have consistency. 
Um, I would just say there shouldn't be a policy that's for women and a different policy that's for men around some of these parenting questions. I'm going to move us to talk about one of the next chapters because I know we don't have a ton of time left. And I think it's really important that we get to talk about this. So um, you have a chapter that's called Create an Environment of Safety. And um, this was, I, I loved this chapter. It made me think about things differently than I ever had before. Um, so I'm just going to kind of start by opening it up to you to talk about how you have seen some of the context being that like we've we've come from an era where we have things like the Billy Graham rules. One of the things you said is that these are good, but they don't go far enough. And then you really got into the heart of that chapter. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So for those who aren't familiar, the Billy Graham rule, also now known as the Mike Pence rule, <laughs> is <laughs> this idea that uh, uh, men meet only one-on-one with other men, that if they're going to have a conversation with a woman, uh, there would be a third person present. And women talk only with other women one-on-one. If they're going to have a, um, a conversation with a guy, they'd have a third person present. Uh, and that came from Billy Graham in the 1940s when there was a lot of scrutiny around uh, evangelists meeting one-on-one with women, but really because they were having affairs with them. Billy Graham wasn't, but there were other mm-hmm. evangelists who were getting caught by the media, mm-hmm. uh, you know, coming out of hotel rooms and all sorts of things. And so Billy Graham said, hey, we don't even want anyone to worry about that. So we will, you know, we're away from our wives for weeks on end traveling and there's, you know, a phone in the hotel lobby. We're just going to make sure that we are always above reproach in that. And, And he was a national figure. Yes, right. it was, so and like it was tons of media public. was following him. They're taking pictures of him all the time, and he didn't want right. something taken out of context that would ruin his testimony or you know bring harm to the ministry. He also, by the way, had many other things that he felt were important to protect. Things like being very honest about their numbers. There was no pastoral math in the Billy Graham rule, right? Mm-hmm. 102 people was 102. It wasn't almost 200, right? So mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, they never took a love offering. They didn't want people to have a big spiritual moment with the Lord and then ask for money and use the emotions of what God was doing to earn more money. They always did their fundraiser ahead of time. Uh, mm-hmm. And they always connected people back to the local church. They never wanted people to follow them or they never did newsletters. They never did, you know, their own blog. It was always about connecting people back to local church. I love that. Very, very modest, very, very modest salaries too. Yes. It was all very, they were very intentional about being above reproach. And, uh, as we've kind of moved forward from that, unfortunately, we haven't been as good on the other three as we have on the sexual purity piece. I think many churches could actually stand to use all four of those and probably even some more. Uh, but in today's context, part of the challenges of that is when we talk, there's two sides to it. One is uh, when we talk about women growing in leadership, as we mentioned earlier, those one-on-one conversations, mentoring moments are very critical to her development and your ability to know and trust what she's capable of, what God is doing um, in her leadership and where she might want to land in the organization. Um, But the bigger issue is this protection integrity piece. For me, I just do not think the Billy Graham rule goes far enough in our current context. So we live in a LGBTQ and then some culture. When you have a senior pastor and the young guy intern go off on a plane together, share a hotel room together, go to a conference together, that is not above reproach. Me getting together with a girlfriend and talking all night and hanging out and uh, doing whatever, that is no longer above reproach. Mentoring people with big generational changes, no longer above reproach. That's what we've seen in the Catholic Church. We have to be better at being more wise about our integrity. 
and and not feel like we have this bubble of protection because men are meeting with men and women are meeting with women. The last two churches I've walked through a moral failure, both of them happened and never technically broke the Billy Graham rule. Hmm. It was through uh, sexting. It was through made up email accounts. It was through phone calls. And so that just really opened my eyes to the fact that we are uh, fooling ourselves if someone isn't going to snap a picture um, of one of us doing something that we would think was within the belly gram rule and have it not be. So we need to just think differently about how we steward our own purity, um, how we check our hearts, how we build cultures of safety for men, women, college students, teenagers doing a summer internship. Uh, all of those things need to be on our mind, not just traditional affair with your secretary, which by the way, most guys meet with their secretaries one-on-one all the time. For some reason, that doesn't apply to the Billy Graham rule. And she has access to all of his passwords. So like we just, we're not thinking it through clearly. So I go into quite a bit of conversation around this in the book, some suggestions, um, even some ways that we talk about our ministries on the weekend that I feel like are really encouraging, uh, knocking down what should be normal, healthy social barriers in relationships. We really champion intimacy. We really champion refrigerator rights. We really champion all of these kind of small group languages that really are um, nurturing uh, the knocking down of boundaries of what should be good, social, healthy, spiritually fruitful relationships. The metaphor, of course, that Paul uses is that we are a family. And so, you know, when I when I'm connecting with a brother of mine in Christ, uh, a brother and sister only go so far in how much they share. They only go so far in how much they touch or the ways they touch each other. They only go so far in the amount of time they should spend together. There's all these boundaries that we know in family relationships. I think we do ourselves a justice when we start thinking about our relationships as the body of Christ, more like that family metaphor and create some professional boundaries and guidelines for all of our leaders that uh, point us towards those healthy relationships where everyone, again, gets to sit around the family dinner table. It doesn't mean the women go to one room and the guys go to another. Everybody's around the family dinner table because everyone's included. But with that comes certain boundaries that are going to be different with my spouse than they are with the guys that I work with. So then what are some of the positive things, right? So like if so, for example, when the Mike Pence thing happened and people were complaining about that, I was like, look, this isn't hard. Like, you go to lunch with two women on your staff instead of just one. Like, Well, like- that's the suggestion I give in the book and usually talk about one easy way to do it is there is this kind of leadership mantra of like always taking some with you or doing these one-on-one things. If we can just talk about it is always taking two people with you. So if you go to the hospital on an emergency, take two staff people with you or two leaders with you. Take two guys, take two girls, take a guy and a girl. But if you always take two, again, this is about changing our own personal leadership ha- practices to be more inclusive. If I always take two, even if I don't always take a woman, I'm letting every woman know that she's got a place uh, with me to go in leadership. And then I can take two. When I go to a conference, I always travel with two people and we always get separate rooms. So it's never a question Uh, because I've oftentimes been the one girl that goes on the retreat and I'm at a house down the road by myself and all the guys are hanging out, staying up late, watching movies and getting all this great relationship time. Get everybody their own room. Everyone should have their own space. It shouldn't be that people are left out. One of the ways you can kind of challenge yourself on it is that if you were to take the gender rules that you have in your own personal practices, whatever you've decided they are, either you've decided or you've fallen into them and apply any other minority status to it. So I only go to lunch with people who can walk. I never go to lunch with people in a wheelchair or I only go to lunch with white pastors. I never go to lunch with black pastors. 
I mean, the cringe factor, you feel it, right? You're just like, oh, that feels so awful. Well, that's the way it feels to a woman when you say, I have lunch with guys, but for the women, we'll just meet at two o'clock in my office and you can get a cup of coffee, bring a cup of coffee if you want, right? It's not the same. And so we want to just try to make sure our own practices are as equitable as possible. And that if we want to have lunch with our team, we always bring lunch into the office or we always go downstairs to the lobby or we only meet in groups of three. Whatever the practice is, just make sure you can apply it to everyone the same. The um, the other piece about that that stuck out to me too is that if you're bringing two along with you, I mean, that's just that much more leadership exposure and development for whomever in your same one chunk of time. Like as a leader, maximizing your efforts is so beneficial. And so, I mean, this has multiple applications of why this is fruitful and helpful in developing other leaders. Mm-hmm. Yes. There, I think I mean, we, there- we've sometimes overshot the one-on-one relationship. Um, you know, Jesus had his three, his 12, and his 70. That's a much healthier model. Uh, one-on-one really needs to be more in our homes with parenting than it is uh, necessarily in leadership development. So those one-on-one things should be the 10%, not the 90%. Hmm. So... Um, the last chapter that we'll talk about, um, and just these are just a couple random questions that I think fit into this chapter really well, is about how to take on your culture. And so um, when you're working with churches on trying to change a culture, how do you help them to start evaluating their culture? Because, I mean, it's water. You're swimming in it. You're not really aware of it. So how do you help them start the process of evaluating it? Well, there's a lot of things that are really simple ways to do it. The first is to just start asking. Uh, in this situation, we're talking about female leaders, but just start asking some of the high-capacity female leaders, what's it like to be a female leader here? What's it like to be a female leader under my leadership? Uh, what's your experience? Uh, what, what do I do that's great? What do I do that's not great? Uh, and then I think the second category is where is to find those women who are great leaders in other spheres of their life and ask them the same question Mm -hmm. if they're not thriving in leadership with you. Help me understand what is it, what are the messages you're getting about you as a leader here? Uh, Help me understand why you haven't been doing more. You have all this talent. What have we been missing? You know, where are we going wrong? And just really be open to the answers. It's not an easy conversation. Uh, You have to be willing to listen to some hard things. Uh, But if you do it with enough women, I would say even uh, a minimum of five you will probably start to see some trends. And the trends is where you want to spend your time. Uh, Everyone's concerns and everyone's experiences are valid, and you can probably speak to all of their unique experiences. But as a leader, you can't take on everyone's unique journey. But if all five women talk about, well, it just seems like this, or when I come on Sunday morning, that, Mm -hmm. then take that on as a top priority. Uh, The second thing I would say is have someone not in your ministry or at your church come and audit your services and team meetings and even your own leadership practices and give you some objective feedback. When I come to your weekend service, a lot of times churches will hire me to come in and do this. I'll be sort of like a secret shopper. And so I'll, you know, wander into children's ministry. I try to talk to the parking lot guys. I look at the program. I'm waiting to see if anyone's going to say hi to me when I sit down by myself. I'm looking at all of that, but then I'm watching really closely to what are the hidden messages that you probably aren't even realizing you're sending to women Mm -hmm. or other minorities that I might not notice. So I notice when the entire band is men. 
mm-hmm. the one woman is a backup singer and never mm-hmm. says anything the entire morning. Most guys go, we got women on stage all the time. And I'm like, well, but what she did was so different than what anyone else did. Or you brought a husband and wife up and the husband held the mic and she nodded the whole time. Or you brought a husband and wife off, but you only wanted to talk to her about her ministry. Why was the husband there? So things like that that you might not notice about. A lot of times pastors will fall into a rut of making jokes about how they can't find uh, something in the refrigerator or they you can't believe they got their kids to school on time as if they're a horrible parent or can't function in their own home. It feels like a compliment to women, but it's not. It says she does home stuff and good thing I'm good at work because I can do things here, right? Degrading men is just as harmful as degrading women. So those kinds of habits or sort of go-tos that we might not even notice in our culture, just having someone give us feedback about it. And it's not about like fixing everything overnight or getting paranoid when you get up and talk uh, in front of your church, but it's about being intentional to make sure you're highlighting all the leaders of your church, to make sure you're not highlighting uh, just the guys who can speak really well. Um, but are making sure you're having guys that don't speak very well, but he's an awesome small group leader, making sure you've got women who are marketplace leaders and you want to celebrate them, not just on teacher appreciation on the first day of school. That's the only time you celebrate women and Mother's Day, uh, that you're talking and preaching all of God's word, not just talking about women on certain subjects. Uh, so just those kinds of things just help bring awareness that our entire diet is living out and giving the theological message that we believe. If you don't believe women should do anything outside the home, then I would really challenge you not to have any examples of women and their professional jobs. If you believe they should, then I would encourage you to celebrate women in all aspects of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I want to ask a couple specific questions that, um, one that I had, one that another woman who read your book, who's on a staff team had. So I'll start with this other question. She said, one area that you talked about in the chapter, they're both kind of about keeping the status quo. So the first, she says, um, in your book, you wrote, women often feel trapped between being willing to help where they're needed and falling into tasks that ultimately discredit their leadership clout. How have you counseled women to discern what's the right thing to do in this kind of a situation? Sure. I think what we're talking about is what we sometimes affectionately call, I'll say it in air quotes, like office housework. So uh, cleaning up after a meeting, getting the coffee, taking notes in the meeting, being the one to write on the write on the whiteboard because she has the best handwriting, uh, putting together the agenda, sending out the calendar invite. Those tend to be kind of like the office housework or the meeting housework that it's easy for uh a woman to either jump in and volunteer or oftentimes men will ask them to step up and do those responsibilities. I would say there's nothing wrong with that. If you are an amazing baker or you make the best latte in the building, maybe you should make the coffee. So this isn't a a 100% uh, across the board. But if you aren't those things and you don't want to do it, then think really clearly and um, uh, for yourself, what is what is it that your gifting and abilities are? Mm-hmm. What are you hired to do? If you're the event coordinator, you probably should bring the coffee. <laughs> if right. you're the you know, if you're the the director's assistant, you probably should take the minutes. So that's why it's not across the board. It's like, what am I hired to do? And what helps me do that? And what doesn't help me do that? Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, particularly like when I ran all of multi-site, so I oversaw all the campuses. Um, when I showed up, I needed my assistant to make sure the room was ready because I am terrible at all those details. But I always wrote my own agenda or I even offered and facilitated our directional leadership team agenda because I know if I'm in charge of the agenda, I'm a processor. I like to be prepared for meetings. I know what's coming. 
I can set the order. Uh-huh. If I didn't always take the minutes, but I always reviewed the minutes and was the one to send them out because I got the final view. If there was something I didn't agree with, I could research it. Once those minutes are sent, they're locked in stone, right? You yeah. don't really edit at one thing. So that helped me in my leadership role. I didn't mind doing that. Writing on the board was not good for me because once I start writing, I stop thinking uh-huh. because I think with my hands. Yeah. And so um, I, I really should never facilitate my own meeting. I always bring someone in to write on the whiteboard because I can't contribute and write on the whiteboard. So some of those I kept, some of those I didn't. And that's what we each have to do. We have to lead ourselves. What's helping me? <laughs> deliver on what I'm hired to do and what's not helping me. And then speak up for yourself and say, I'm willing to do these two, but I cannot also do these three things. Someone else is going to have to do that. The other thing I really encourage women to do is many times, especially in churches, they often don't ask for an assistant often enough. And it's because they're like, I don't mind doing that, or I'm good at calendar invites, or, you know, I yes, I get as many emails as everyone else, but the church can't afford it. The higher you go in leadership, the more you need someone to take up the administrative weight, particularly if you're good at it, because that means mm-hmm. it matters to you. You being late to a meeting, you dropping a ball, you missing someone's whatever, that matters to you more. You need help more than someone who doesn't care if they're late or they missed a meeting or it doesn't affect them as much. So just making sure that sometimes what you don't need is a raise, what you need is an assistant or what you, you're willing to take on that second department, but you also need a right-hand person 20 hours a week to help all the other things go forward. So making sure you're asking for what you actually need. And then that person can bring the coffee. That's what they're there for. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with advancements in technology, like there's ways to hire an assistant five hours a week. And like you can really start. are wonderful. Start mm-hmm. inex- fairly inexpensively. Yeah. One of the things that happened with Nicole was when she was, I don't know if this is the second kid or something you were like, you were like, listen, I, was I don't. After had our first kid. Yeah, you were like, listen, I don't want to work full time. I'm willing to take the pay cut, but I still want to do the job. So can we get like a nine or 10 hour assistant yep. for me? I think I, yeah. And it, that's, what, it that's was, what we did. I was like, I was like, listen, that doesn't cost me anything. If that's what you want to do, it's fine. It you know? was such a help too, because it did exactly. I mean, you talked about this even earlier, Katie, that it like, it allowed me to focus on the strategic leadership things that I still wanted to do. I still was able to stay invested in the ministry and all the administrative stuff that was time consuming, but not brain consuming. That was just gone. And it was, it was so helpful. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's less expensive for the leader. Like what I pay that person per hour is less than I pay Nicole per hour. Yeah. So like some of those things can really be win-wins even like sometimes yeah. you're not even really asking your boss to do more for you. You're, you're really just asking for a different arrangement and oftentimes yeah. like, yes. You know. Yes. One of the things I teach in negotiation is what's the easy yes. What is the thing? What is it that you want? And then how can I make this be an easy yes for my boss? And just shifting money from one staff paycheck to another is an easy yes to get mm-hmm. all the same yeah. benefits. Yeah. yeah. Okay. One I of the have- things I did, I don't know if you remember this, Nicole, but like every woman we hire I always tell them, um, women don't ask for raises as much as men. You should you should feel free to ask for a raise. I'll, and I'll just say no. Mm-hmm. Like if I can't do it, I'll just tell you no. But you don't lose any relational anything. Like I don't think you're not loyal or anything. If you ask for one, I'll just tell you no if I can't give it to you or yeah. give you all of it. Yeah. And so I I say it to every woman just because like I That's just heard so they good. don't ask for raises as much. So because I and I think it's probably like an emotional they feel like. I'm going to think badly about them or something or that they're mm-hmm. greedy or too ambitious. And so sometimes if you just know that that's hanging in the air, sometimes like with any relationship, if you know something's hanging in the air, sometimes you can just verbalize it and yeah. then it's not a problem anymore. 
at least hopefully. Okay. I have one last question from me and then Nick, if you have other questions, I'll let you end, but this is the last one for me. So talking about taking on culture and dealing with the status quo, something that I think is maybe, you know, well, it's a complicated way that I relate to my environments, but I have felt like there is, I, I said this before, I've always felt very encouraged and empowered as a leader from the people in my life. But I also feel like, well, there's kind of this culture that I'm sitting in. And there are rules to the game for leading as a woman in that setting. And I've sort of throughout my life had the mindset of like, I'm just going to learn the rules. And I'm just going to play the game because I still want to win. And like, not in a, in like, I want to succeed in leading. And so I'm just going to figure out the rules. and I'm going to play the game. So like I said before, like someone just calls me bossy. I'm like, yep, I am. It's a good leader. Like I, someone's got to do it. I don't mind being the person. Um, another ex- example is when I was working on a college campus and I was a spiritual leader on this campus for men and women, but I knew that it was going to take more for the men to follow me than for the women, for the, for the college guys. And so I knew that if they could hear me sing, they would see me excel at a skill and they would develop respect for me, and then they would trust me in other areas too. So I knew I needed to like, if I could get that in front of them, then I knew they would trust me more in terms of like their spiritual formation and leadership. Um, and then I, I mentioned this before, there are like certain men who, that I work with in our church setting where I know if I'm too direct here, they're going to see it a particular way. And and I've I've observed it in their demeanor that like, they didn't like how I just said that, even though I really think if it came from Nick or if it came from one of the other men on our staff team, they would just kind of like brush it off and not think much of it. Um, how much of this, like, I, I think my question really is, I don't, I don't always know when I need to just play the game because I, what I really want is the success. Like, I, I don't always need the affirmation or the like acknowledgement. I want the success to happen. And yet I also think that there's a point where it's worth challenging the status quo or challenging that culture. And I don't always know when to do which one. And Mm -hmm. so, so an example of that is when we did hire this person who was working part-time for me, I knew my, I liked, I would much rather send a direct email that doesn't have the fluffy, like, preamble that every email is required or doesn't have some way of softening it coming from me with a smiley face or an exclamation point. Like, I just want to say, I need you to do this without her thinking I'm mad at her. And I, so I talked about that with her at the very beginning because I knew I cannot forever have to work with my assistant and be flowery in my emails. That's going to drive me crazy. Um, so that was a time where I'm like, that's worth it. But I don't always know the, the environment, like when to do which thing. So I just, I would love to know what advice you have for that or what thoughts you have on that. Sure. It's a great question. And I think part of what you're talking about too is being in a church culture. Generally speaking, our church cultures uh, like things to be a little softer or a little bit more relational. And a lot of guys who come from the business world and get into church culture, it's like, I can't just email, do this thing. Like that's going to be, I'm going to get called into the principal's office for that. What? So um, there is sort of this uh, agenda on pastoring or ministry mindset or the heart, you know, kind of thing. So you're, you're really hitting up against a couple of things. I would say, uh, even from your examples, to be really honest, 
uh, it's really about being effective. You're using the word success. And I think, um, again, that word is a hard one in a ministry setting, but it's exactly the right word. Effective is the other word, right? I want to be effective as a leader. I've been given a task. I want to do a good job. And a huge part of leadership is knowing your audience and knowing what they need you. That's part of being a servant, right? Jesus didn't call any of us to lead. He called all of us to serve using our gifts. And part of the way you serve is you take the hit. You're like, these guys um, that I know, these seven guys or 17 guys or 70 guys are going to appreciate it if they can get used to me up on stage singing and then they'll be more likely. And that was a brilliant way to do it. Now, not all 70 of those guys needed that, but enough of them did and you intuitively knew and that was an avenue. So that's really working your leadership. If you were to go to Africa, you would have to completely change your style of leadership because the African culture, it has nothing to do with being a woman, their communal way they operate. Uh, white hierarchical leadership just bombs there, right? So you would have to completely rework yourself there. So part of it is knowing your culture, knowing your people, and being willing to adjust yourself to serve them for the effectiveness of what you're being called to do. Now, when it comes to something like your assistant, you handled it exactly right because her preference would be to get it this way, but you guys work together so much that you have to talk about it and give yourself permission and her give you permission to operate in a different way than what she would prefer. That's one of her ways she's going to serve you and you're going to serve her by talking to her about it and vice versa. So it's a win-win. So I would just encourage you to not feel like you're playing some game Um, and also to not think of it as if all men need me to be an expert or all men need me to be, you know, like uh, unassuming or, or right, yeah. yeah, but like, who are the men I'm working with? Like yeah. at some point your team, you, you should know them well enough and they should know you well enough that you can warm up all of those things. And as you get acclimated in a team, you're like, Hey guys, just so you know, I might just say something here that doesn't sound right. Or I'm verbally processing, so give me a little space. Or you guys know how I am. I always have an idea and then I never want to follow through with it, right? But we do that in all of our team dynamics. So it's really about... Uh, assessing who am I doing this for and why. If the why is because they need to know me better, I need to be more authentic. You can't do that on day one, but you can do that on day 30 and you can do it even better on year three Mm -hmm. and even better on year 30, right? right? So we should get better at that as we go. If you are holding back more and more as you go, and this is what we found in our research of female leaders, is that The longer a female Mm -hmm. leader was on their church staff, the less confident she felt and the less like her Mm -hmm. own leadership she felt. That's Mm -hmm. the problem Mm -hmm. is when we haven't created great working relationships and we haven't pushed into knowing one another and uh, understanding our contribution and giving grace for our weaknesses. When our teams haven't done a good job getting to know each other, we've stayed in stereotypes. Women have to pull more and more into the stereotype and they can't be authentically who they're made to be. And that is incredibly stressful and ineffective. So that's what you want to make sure. Ask yourself, am I closer to being more myself in my leadership today than I was a year ago? Then you're moving in the right direction. No one is their authentic self and around another human entirely, right? Right. We all have to put on, you know, the armor of God and the disciplines of the spirit and have self-control, right? We don't get to just show up and be whoever we want. Sure. But Mm -hmm. am I becoming Mm -hmm. more Christ-like and more of myself or am I shrinking back and losing confidence the longer I'm leading here? If that's the case, mm-hmm. then I need to relook at what I'm doing and why. Yeah. 
That's very yeah. helpful. You you mentioned at one point in the book that I that part of what women need to do is discern: is this a gender issue, is just, or is this just a leadership issue? And I think or a me issue, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. So I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think. Um, so, uh, Katie, I'm going to give you the last word in just a second. I do feel obligated since we've had you on the podcast to um, review the name of your book, right? <laughs> so the the book we've been talking about today is Developing Female Leaders, Navigate the Minefield, and Release the Potential of Women in Your Church. Uh, Katie's just finished her third book, which is um, Find Your Leadership Voice, which is going to be released March 3rd. She also has two classes on her website. So her the spelling of her name is K-A-D-I. Cole, C-O-L-E. So K-A-D-I-C-O-L-E. And there's uh, a couple of master's class kind of classes on her website about one is um, Female Leader Leaders Accelerator, which is an eight-week course, and then Developing Female Leaders Masterclass, which is an eight-weeks course. Um, so those are things Katie does. If you really liked her listening to her on this, then I'm sure she would love for you to participate and use some of her tools and so on. Um, yeah, I think um, for, for me working with um, I have never worked on a staff where um, less than 50% of the staff was women. However, usually women are in the administrative roles. So when you get to the ministry staff, it's usually like closer to 50-50 or sometimes slightly um, weighted to the male side. However, the men who get like MDivs, like the huge master's degrees, so they end up being the point leaders of the churches, those tend to be men very disproportionately, especially in complementarian churches. Um, but I find that the stuff I'm working on with younger women staff is, is like human stuff. Like, I mean, I, there's a way I think that they're engendering it as a woman, but it's like, listen, you have to speak with poise. I mean, speak like a woman. You could totally speak like a woman, but you better have poise. They better know that you know what you're talking about. You believe you know what you're talking about. You know where we're going and you know what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Say it as a woman, however you want to say it. I don't care. But like, they better believe that if they follow you, they're not going to end up in a cul-de-sac, right? Like <laughs> it, te or or like, listen, if you disagree, you've got to say something. Like you've got to, or like, it's like I, I mean, it seems like I'm like, look, you know what you thought? Why didn't you say it? And they're like, well, I thought people would disagree. Well, th yes, they're gonna. Like you've got to, you know. Mm -hmm. But it seems like when you're a woman, or sometimes if you're a minority on a staff team, that just it's hard to do because sometimes I think you don't feel like you're in the club enough. To disagree, like like I feel free to disagree in meetings because I'm the boss, right? right? And and I'm also I have a lot of verbal facility. I think one of the reasons why Nicole has been so successful is because she has very fast, highly intelligent verbal facility. I find that other staff members who can't say exactly what they think really clearly immediately, like they don't process like immediately, they tend to struggle more. And if you are trying to process in real time in a meeting and you're not feeling confident and you're not sure you're in the inner circle and you don't know what people are going to say and you don't know what that's going to make you look like, man, that like really messes with your ability to make a contribution. Then you don't make the contribution and then you get treated like somebody who doesn't make contributions, which is not what you want if you're trying to develop as a female leader, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that if you are particularly the only female or the only minority, there is a weight that we carry that feels like if I mess this up, it's going to discredit all women or all mm -hmm. black people or all Hispanic people or all people over 60 or all people under 25, like whatever it is that I feel like I'm the representative of. Mm -hmm. uh, and that extra pressure makes me anyone a little bit more cautious to not mess it up. That's part of that sticky floor of those things we're kind of battling in our head. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, just uh, verbal acuity and the ability to think fast, you know, 
the church at the end of the day is a professional communication platform. And so you're with professional communicators. And so if communication and processing things verbally and quickly isn't one of your strong points, it is hard to kind of roll with that at higher levels because these are all people trained and gifted in those ways. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think those of us who do have that capacity also, though, have to make sure we're slowing down long enough to get the wisdom and insight for other gifts at the table. Mm-hmm. And we we create just like we create lopsided organizations when we have only white men of middle age at the leadership table. We create lopsided decisions when we have only a couple giftings at a table. And we like people with our gifts. It's fun to run with people with our gifts. We make decisions really quick and easy because we all see it the same way quickly. Uh, But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best decision. And so Mm -hmm. making sure we're kind of being inclusive and creating space for everyone to bring their perspective, uh, sort of regardless of the label we have on them or the way we think about them, we've got the right diversity in all those aspects. That's what makes great, healthy organizations. And that's what God talks about in John 17. For me, this is really less about gender. It's more about unity and togetherness, Mm -hmm. that Jesus really wants us to be leading together across all those outside uh, labels that we could easily fall into or fall out of. He really wants us to find the godly people who are gifted by him and anointed to be fruitful. That's who he wants us to connect with. And that's who he wants us to lead with. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Our guest today has been Katie Cole, author of Developing Female Leaders. Katie, thank you for giving us so much time. I just want to say in closing, um, as I read the book, I don't think that you share exactly the same gender theology as I or our church, but I feel like you were very careful to not make that the focus, but to make the focus like what you can do, like what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast, taking up the difference between where women think they're invited to be and where they really are and making sure that people are maximized as much as possible in the, for the unity and togetherness and the effectiveness of the ministry. And so um, for those of you who are like, you know, stuff, some of the stuff Katie said, I wonder if she believes like us at High Point. Um, she probably doesn't exactly, but um, she is very careful in the book to focus on what she's focused on. And so we, our staff team, the younger women on our staff team found it very helpful. Yeah. So if you're interested in the book, I would encourage you to read it. She writes well. She's on topic. It's it's a good it's a good work. She's clearly thought about this stuff and has experience in it. Katie, thanks so much for all the time you gave Thank us. You, we, Katie. we really appreciate it. Thank you both. It was great to be here with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.